How can any country effectively deliver healthcare in an economic model where the cost of everything has to go up forever? It's an unsolvable problem for an area of society that is especially affected by broken money. As the cost of everything goes up indefinitely, governments and citizens have to make tough choices constantly about their health and the cost of treatments and services. It's a problem almost everywhere in the world today. Our guest this week is trying to do something about that problem, and he views Bitcoin as a possible solution. Dr. James Wong is the founder of Ni Howdy. It's an American healthcare startup that is using the Lightning Network on Bitcoin to try and lower the out-of-pocket costs of prescription medications. Bitcoin has the power to drive down the cost of a lot of things, and this is a fascinating attempt to apply that concept to medicine. You're listening to The Block Reward, the show where we help you understand Bitcoin without you having to be obsessed with it. I'm Scott Deedles, and I'm the founder and CEO of Block Rewards, and part of our mission in bringing Bitcoin to the workplace is helping people understand how it will help them. So if you're ready to learn something about the economics of healthcare, how broken money makes healthcare unsustainable, and how Bitcoin might help with that problem, stick around. We're about to get into it. All right, welcome to another episode of the Block Reward Podcast. This week, we are joined by Dr. James Wong, founder of Ni Howdy. Welcome, James. Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me. Really amazing to be here today on this podcast. We're taking on a big topic today, which is uh, one of personal interest for my for me. I, I've been in uh, private health insurance for the last 15 years. And for the background, for our listeners, I came across Ni Howdy. Why don't you give a, give our listeners a little bit of an overview of what Ni Howdy is and where the idea came from? Yeah, definitely. Well, Ni Howdy, first of all, is a prescription savings card. We pass back drug rebates and our drug rebates come in the form of Bitcoin. And we work with people who need to buy medications out of pocket. So every time there's a prescription refill needed at say CVS, Walgreens, or Rite Aid, you can go there, use our Nihaudi membership. It's free of cost. And basically after we save you money on your prescription, we pass back uh, Bitcoin as a rebate to you. We're actually the only company in America that gives drug rebates back to people when they get medications. But yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. So I guess there, and we're, we're going to talk a little bit about Nihaudi later on in the conversation and this it's this foundational idea that maybe bitcoin could be the silver bullet for also fixing healthcare bitcoin fixes everything is a common refrain in the bitcoin community and one of my favorite bitcoin isms comes from Zeb Bunny who was on the show a long time back in October that everything is downstream of money and the idea is that all of the social problems that we see sort of in the world today are really rooted in this this uh, systemic problem of broken money and i really think this applies to healthcare and so i think there's a lot of interesting discussions to be had about the disastrous ramifications that broken money has on healthcare. And that, that's kind of where we're going to take this conversation today. Before we do that, I want to start with asking you the question that we ask our guests every week on this show, and that is, what is Bitcoin? There is the formal definition, which I won't really bore you with. But to me, um, when I look at Bitcoin, it's a way of saving monetary energy. It's something that was permanent and stays on the blockchain forever. It never goes away. There's no leaky energy. Nothing is eroded. For the first time in humankind history, Bitcoin solves a huge issue when it comes to inflation, censorship of transactions, and people just can't even access a bank account. But yeah, Bitcoin to me is just monetary energy that's stored much more efficiently than, say, the U.S. dollar. Well, what, what's you, you've been you've been in Bitcoin a little bit longer than me. What was your what's your story, and how how did you come to understand Bitcoin? I first found out about it. I'm gonna say in 2011 or 12. My roommate was talking about it at that time. And there was a website called the Silk Road. So my friend would commonly um, purchase marijuana, actually, through the Silk Road. So I was like, oh, this is kind of interesting. So at first, I thought it was just, you know, some internet digital gift card. So I didn't really pay too much attention to it. 
But when I got to pharmacy school, I kept hearing about Bitcoin a little bit more. And I was like, oh, this is actually really interesting. It's There's some value here. But it wasn't probably until I would say 2017, 2018, where I sort of sat down, read Satoshi's white paper, started talking to people about, you know, what is Bitcoin? Why is this so important? And I started to realize the sort of pain points that it treats, but it fixes. There's a lot of issues with central banking, people for print money without any sort of like mechanism of watching over what they're doing. Um, it's kind of bad. For the first time, Bitcoin sort of, you know, software code that everyone can abide to. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're big fans of Bitcoin, obviously, here too. So uh, yeah, we're in agreement. So to come around to this idea of maybe first, we'll, we'll just spend a little bit of time talking about the problem that broken money is putting into, I guess, society's ability to effectively deliver healthcare and do it in a sustainable way. And when I think about the challenges that are being faced by healthcare today, and it's different in every country, but I think the root problems are the same because every country has the same broken money problems just to different extents. I kind of think about two big baskets, and one of those would be the incentive mechanisms that result in in the healthcare industry as a result of in fiat money, the price of everything has to go up forever. And then I think about the a secondary resulting problem, which would be in the delivery, which has to do with affordability and cost of living crisis that's going on as a result of broken money that that makes people actually accessing healthcare more and more challenging over time. So I prepared a few statistics for our listeners who are maybe a little bit less in the weeds on healthcare as just a sort of introductory background, which I think might be useful. In Canada, healthcare spending has tripled in the last 20 years. In the U.S., that number has quadrupled since 1980. And both countries and, and sort of most of the Western world right now, we're, we're facing these problems of, of GDP, our gross domestic product, the output of the, of the national economy is shrinking and the costs of healthcare healthcare services, healthcare products are rising. So as a percentage of GDP, no matter where you look, there's an upward pressure on the amount of available budget that's going into healthcare. I don't think it matters how it's how, how you cut it. So every country's sort of facing this challenge in their own way. James, maybe let me uh, let me ask you sort of if we had to start by thinking about what are, what are the effects of broken money on being able to just deliver healthcare to end users? Well, I mean, Scott, to your credit, you point out a lot of things are wrong in healthcare. The incentives are all kind of messed up right now. Um, you did mention and talk about the GDP here in America. I believe healthcare, um, 20% of the GDP is allocated to healthcare, which is a really big number. Um, when I look at healthcare, there's definitely a lot of inefficiencies. Only in America am I aware of this. There's a lot of middlemen sort of practices. You basically have these large insurance entities that have a lot of different vertical businesses. They're incentivized to keep all their healthcare dollars flowing within their own vertical industries. If there's a new provider that is trying to join the network, they make it very difficult for these providers to sort of join and to you know, effectively market themselves and do business. There is essentially just a monopoly on healthcare whether it's pharmacy, whether it's durable medical equipment or, say, skilled nursing, a lot of healthcare services are, you know, they're almost essentially a monopoly here in America, which is pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's the same in Canada. The private health insurance space in Canada is 70% controlled by three companies. So 
that's that's about as Canadian as you can get. That, that's that's every industry in Canada. But so yeah, you mean you mentioned an interesting point about supply chains sort of ballooning as a result of these uh, different in- incentive mechanisms, and I, and I think that's really an interesting point to maybe just hone in on. Like you're in the pharmacy business, maybe just can you walk us through a specific to pharmacy the, the current state of all of the different profit points along the way from the production of a drug to to the end point where where a user is maybe getting it the counter yeah i mean first of all it depends on if the drug's generic or brand typically a lot of brand name drugs there's a patent on that for about 10 years these manufacturers will try to jack the price as much as possible and be billing you know medicare or say medicaid a state or federal program they will have the pharmacy distribute these medications but they'll pay them say like one to two percent of the margin or actual purchase price of the medication majority of the money is actually being or the revenue being collected is actually through the benefits manager. So in in our industry, we have something called a pharmacy benefit manager. They're the ones who register, sign up these different pharmacies and allocate and distribute the payments of the drugs. They essentially will charge maybe say 20, 30% of the gross marginalized value and tell the pharmacy, hey, look, we're going to pay for the cost of the drug plus maybe one to 2% on top of that. So it's kind of weird that you have a middleman that sort of takes the bulk of the revenue when the provider themselves are doing a majority of the work. Before there was Obamacare, there was actually a million dollar threshold cap on every individual. So if there was a manufacturer that was coming out with a new drug on the market, well, they would have to take into consideration that each individual only has a million dollar lifetime sort of expectancy that the government will pay out. Of course, you can go over that cap, but it made drug pricing much more reasonable. That cap was removed actually after Obamacare or the ACA was implemented. So you start to see all these new drugs coming out and they're just being priced at like ridiculous rates. Uh, To give an example, Sovaldi, this was a drug that was used to essentially treat or cure hepatitis um, B, I believe. The go-to-market price was on this was like forty to fifty thousand dollars per dose. So it's it's hard to sort of answer this question in a sense, like, is it right for drugs to, or is it right for manufacturers to charge these ridiculous prices on all these different drugs? I've heard, you know, many sides of the argument on both sides. Some people say, well, it's necessary because we need to cover the cost for research and development. If you didn't know this, out of like three to 400 applications that the FDA receives, maybe they'll only approve one or two of these ads, these drugs. Maybe this these funds get used to uh, research new drugs in the future. Um, but it, it's definitely concerning because I do see that the pharmaceutical industry is like very heavily subsidized by the American taxpayer. One of the biggest issues or at least concerns I have is we're all American taxpayers. We all pay taxes which support state and federal programs like Medicaid and Medicare. Why is it that Medicare and Medicaid beneficiaries are able to access better pricing than people who have to pay for medications out of pocket? These other people would probably be in your working class, people like me. Unfortunately, we're sort of burdened to pay higher costs on medications, unfortunately. Yeah, and, and I think this is kind of what, what highlights this issue. I mean, it, the, the right and wrong of whether a, a drug should be that expensive or not. Part of it is inherently tied to this concept of the pharmaceutical companies that are marketing and producing these drugs are under their own pressure to infinitely raise their shareholder value because in our fiat world, the, basically the, the price of everything has to go up forever. And, and that includes investor returns 
right? So there is a an economic model built into the structure of healthcare today that dictates a strong profit motive. And I think it's true to say that with drugs, at least pharmaceutical companies have identified blockbuster drugs, the really expensive ones as as the best bang for their buck in terms of producing a product that might really impact the bottom line. Definitely. There's, you know, I've been wanting to talk to you about the Inflation Reduction Act. I don't know if right now would be a great time to sort of bring it up, but Congress recently passed the Inflation Reduction Act here in America, and it gave CMS, which is Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, to renegotiate the drug spend. So what they do, Medicare as an entity, gets to renegotiate their top five drugs every single quarter for the next five to 10 years, and they reduce the drug spend by anywhere from 20 to 30%. So the idea here is that Medicare as an entity would pay far less on drugs going forward. The problem is these pharmaceutical companies, they're not going to say, hey, I'm going to take a 20 to 30% haircut on this. What we're going to end up doing is reduce our drug rebates that go to every state program and to every large employer. So people who are in the working class, people who are not on the age of 65 and over, they're going to be left with a higher copay, a higher share of cost. Their prescription that they're taking, it might not even be covered by the insurance anymore in the future. Um, this is you know, incredibly concerning. The other part about the Inflation Reduction Act here is that any drug manufacturer that raises their drug pricing year over year beyond the CPI, which is how we measure the inflation rate, that percentage, that delta is um, allowed to be clawed back from the government. So an example of this is, say the CPI is reported by the government's 3% and a drug manufacturer decides to increase their pricing by 5%. There's a 2% delta right there. The federal government's able to claw back that 2%. So if you're a new manufacturer saying, hey, I got to put a new drug on the market and got to price this thing, I have to now take this into consideration that I can't increase the pricing beyond the CPI. So what you're going to end up seeing in the next five to 10 years is new drugs on the market that are priced exorbitantly higher than they normally should have been priced. And unfortunately, this sort of is, in my opinion, a huge ticking time bomb in this industry. A lot of people are going to have less coverage. They're going to have higher deductibles, higher copays. Their premiums are going to be higher. It's not a good situation, in my opinion. I guess, firstly, just to say the idea of the government ever passing, of any government passing a bill called the Inflation Reduction Act is insane. It's like, so they're going to intervene more to externally force a, a free market to change their profit incentives and when the, you know, without any discussion of tinkering with the one thing that they really might actually be able to impact, which is the the new amount of money that's being created at a given time that, you know, is, is causing the price of everything to need to go up. We have kind of a similar thing happening in Canada in a totally different industry, which is uh, grocery chains. And the Canadian government has talked a lot about the exorbitant profit margins happening in, in among the big grocers and that they're they, you know they need to you know the, our their way uh, our way in Canada of fighting inflation is by forcing the grocers to to make lower margins and and it, they, you know this this concept I think um, no matter how you what, what industry you apply it to the idea that the government is going to fix inflation by doing something other than fixing monetary policy is just like the ultimate sleight of hand, you know, right? Because it, it also kind of magnetizes people to social issues that people are passionate about. That's why I think healthcare is such a good example of one of those things. Like people, healthcare matters. And we're, we're not going to stop, you know, it's, it's not, it's going to be always an essential part of society. It's a lightning rod for, um, for opinions. And it's a complicated subject, for sure. I mean, groceries, they, the margins there are very low. So to hear that the government is essentially going to be price fixing groceries, I kind of question, are these grocery 
businesses able to survive that when there's price fixing mandated by the government. It's definitely scary. <laughs> Grocery price fixing, I think, tends to be kind of the uh, the last stage of, of financial intervention by a government before before you start to see like serious, serious economic problems. And so, it, yeah, it's scary. We we have had and this is a this is a totally other different conversation, but but food inflation in Canada has been wild. And you go to the grocery store here and the cost of things and and we've had like an explosion of people lashing out on social media just about the, the insane affordability crisis. Like, you know, it's it's getting to be a point where just feeding yourself, housing costs is going up, cost of food, cost of healthcare. You're, you're talking about like just doing the basic things and all of this comes back to money. So as far as, you know, maybe maybe let, let's talk, shift in a little bit then and talk about like, how does this concept of the cost of like, are you seeing the cost of living in the U.S. affect people's ability to access you know, prescriptions and other other healthcare? That is a loaded question. Uh, first of all, everyone is feeling inflation right now. Uh, I can tell you, uh, you can line up maybe 100 people. They'll tell you they'll feel like their purchasing power has significant, significantly reduced in the last, I would say, year or two. When it comes to prescriptions, it's been very interesting to me. I've had many different situations where see an elderly lady would come into the pharmacy they'll have five or six different medications and say hey i only have 20 or 30 dollars for this month what can i go without what should i take and a lot of this is anecdotal within my own experience but from what i talk to my colleagues now who do work at these large retail chain stores these experiences that i've had it's becoming more and more frequent for them unfortunately that's really sad and that kind of tells you that you know medications are Everyone needs them, but it's getting to a point where because people have to spend so much on, say, groceries, insurance, gasoline, other sort of necessity products, it becomes sort of a give or take of like, what can I go with and without? And having to have that conversation with the pharmacist on which medication to take, it's a very sad sort of outlook, in my opinion. But yeah, it's definitely a conversation that a lot of my colleagues are having now. So how would, uh, you know, putting sort of knee-howdy for, aside for a second, do you have some thoughts around how Bitcoin could fix the sustainability and deliverability of healthcare over time. My gosh, it's amazing. Uh, first of all, it's deflationary based design. If you look at Bitcoin, it's a very unconventional asset, but I think it's proven itself over the what, last 13 years or so that this is an asset class that isn't going to go away. It's very volatile. But 30 cents of Bitcoin in, say, 2012, that would be roughly worth, what, two, $3,000 today. I think if you're able to give Bitcoin as a rebate or reward or whatever you want to call it, a coupon, back to the customer and you say, hey, look, wait for a 12 years um, after a couple cycles or so, what is 30 cents now in Bitcoin today or at that price? I think Bitcoin has the potential to solve out-of-pocket prescription costs or just really overly priced um, services within healthcare. It could potentially offset a lot of different expenses. Bitcoin isn't going to go away anytime soon. It's here to stay. You'd have to turn off the internet at this point if you want Bitcoin to go away. But you look at, you know, on an international and global level here, like there's something here. It's just difficult to quantify what that is. There's 8 billion people on this world. There's 21 million Bitcoin. Bitcoin's divisible by up to 100 million Satoshis. I do think there's still a lot of runway to go for Bitcoin. And I think um, offering Bitcoin as an incentive to purchase things would go a really long way in the future for a lot of consumers, not just in the pharmaceutical industry, but almost any, uh, any industry. So I wonder too about, you know, it's this idea, Jeff Booth's idea is that technology by nature is deflationary, but the price of everything in our world does have to go up constantly because there's always more money being made. 
And so this is part of the idea with Bitcoin is that it, it can cause deflation to be passed on to the end user, because if you're switching instead to a money that appreciates in value over time, then the price of things, what price in Bitcoin, and that, that would apply to medications and uh, physician services and all these things too. The price of just about everything priced in Bitcoin is going down over longer periods of time. And that, that's kind of the weird, the weird magic of Bitcoin that is, is really strange for people to wrap their heads around because I, I think people tend to really just look at the price of Bitcoin in dollars fluctuating up and down. And they notice that, you know, in 2022, the price of Bitcoin went down 60%. But if you were to look at the price of real estate in Bitcoin over 15 years, it's the price of houses have gone down like 95% price in Bitcoin. I totally agree with you. I actually spend a frequent amount of time trying to educate, you know, providers, physicians, pharmacists about trying to adopt a Bitcoin standard. And a frequent example I use is actually the real estate example. You know, I was looking at a, a single family home. This is prior to the pandemic for roughly half a million. That same exact house today is worth a million dollars. Back then, the interest rate was like 3%, right now it's 7%. Um, I think I calculated the monthly payment on that mortgage. It's about 2.3 times more expensive. And if you were to sort of factor in all the total interest you would pay along with the principal on the half a million dollar home, that'd be roughly about 700000 in net present value. For the million dollar home, with all taxes factored in, the net present value would be like $2.2 million. So just looking at this and you're saying, well, that's kind of ridiculous. But if you try to price this on the Bitcoin standard, that half a million dollar house, that would have been worth about roughly 60 Bitcoin back in 2019 at the end of the tail end. That same house today would be roughly worth like 20 Bitcoin. So just kind of giving that into perspective, if you're able to price things on Bitcoin standard, you definitely start to see, well, things are very deflationary in this regard. Things are becoming much more affordable. Things are becoming cheaper when you price things on Bitcoin standard. So when then when I think about how that might apply to healthcare. One of the things that I think is is sort of a built-in mechanism with healthcare is sort of a subscription model. Like, it, does it make more sense to actually cure people, or is it, or to have them as you know repeat customers, get people on multiple prescriptions, and they're they're taking things all the time? And uh, what do you think a, a Bitcoin standard might mean for for that kind of a an incentive model? That's actually a pretty interesting conversation to have. We actually learned this in pharmacy school in terms of how much would you price a treatment versus how much would you price a cure. Typically, what you look at when you price a medication, if you're a manufacturer, you look at direct and indirect costs. So direct costs is, all right, well, currently, let's just say you have this disease state. How much do the drugs cost for that disease state? What are the indirect costs associated with it? Say there's hospitalization. Say that people have to stay in a hotel room to stay at the hospital you know, overnight or so. Say there's travel, travel arrangements. Say that you need a nursing or caretaker because this person's on some sort of cancer medication and they need some sort of stay-at-home supportive therapy. A lot of this is taken into consideration when it comes to pricing drug. And of course, if you're giving US dollars, which is sort of inflationary by design, it's healthcare, the government will automatically pay for this because it's a treatment or cure or whatever it is that you know they have to pay for because it's healthcare. Yeah, I mean, if we looked at this on a Bitcoin standard, I definitely think things would be much more affordable. I think businesses would be more incentivized to work on a Bitcoin standard because, you know, say a thousand dollars of Bitcoin today, that thousand dollars might be worth a hundred thousand in the future. Don't know how much it's going to be, but the idea that a business can do some sort of fair amount of work and be paid at a price and they can save that value and that value appreciates over a period of time. I think it's a definitely unconventional way of doing business, but I look at it and say, well, that's a great way to do business because you're giving value to the customers up front by charging a lower price and relying on the fact that Bitcoin's deflationary by design. It's competing against the U.S. dollar. 
Yeah, it's a great way to, uh, I think it's definitely a new business that can be tried. And I think whoever that operator is, they'd be very successful for sure. So do you think Bitcoin could eventually reimagine healthcare in a way that is focused on cures instead of subscriptions? Definitely. Thing is, it's really hard to find a cure. I don't like to use that word so immediately because it's very difficult to find a, a cure, at least from my knowledge so far of how drugs sort of work. If there is a way to Rather, instead of you know, doing a subscription model, of course, but to cure things, like I would totally be in that direction if possible. But I think it's just given the mechanism actions and how much we really know about drugs and how they work in the body, I still feel like we have a long way to go in terms of understanding the science behind it. I guess I think about things like Saifedean Amust has a book out called The Fiat Standard. And part of that book deals with what he calls fiat food. And fiat food is basically the progressive degradation of the food supply because uh, fiat economics and the expense of supply chains and the need for, for profits to con- continually go up have caused the quality of food to go down. And it's not the only thing, but food has a lot to do with disease states and the, the kind of illnesses that people get. So, so I look at it as like, you know, part of me just wonders if there's, a, if there's an entirely new way to look at preventative medicine when it makes sense because of all of the other things that we do in the world that create health, negative health outcomes. And we just don't even, we can't even really assess them because we're just so caught up in broken money. And and I think that food is such a great example of it because it's another one that I do think people are forced to pinch on. Like, you know, the difference between organic produce and regular produce has always been noticeable. But when the cost of everything is becoming unmanageable, these are the choices that people start to make and make even worse. And maybe people eat more and more fast food. And these things are, you know, and, and then you can go even more granular. And it's like the seed oils and the kinds of things that they're being used to cook the food. And all these things do create more cancer and more yeah seed oil is terrifying you know i started looking into this and i didn't know this but seed oil is originally as a industrial lubricant and they found that there to be a secondary use of it to be cooking oil i guess which it's really crazy to me to think about that but yeah there's definitely literature and research that shows that seed oil is definitely not healthy but kind of talking about you know tree looking at things as the disease and symptom and when i look at the economy i mean right now it's not doing that great created for a pretty rough time the symptoms are essentially, you know, it's really bad. Purchasing power is going down. But what is the origin of this disease here? I mean, we have central banking just printing money out of control here. And I, I don't know how they're going to end up solving um, all the issues that we have. Do we just print our way out of this? Really don't know. There aren't a lot of good treatments. Yes, the, you know, there's the two courses of treatment for that particular disease are to just print money more and more forever and keep the party going. And, and the result of that will be maybe things continue on, but purchasing power is going to continue to get worse and, and worse. Or they could try what's called austerity and, and try to get things back in shape. And uh, that would, in the short term, probably break a lot of things and cause a huge amount of pain. And we haven't really lived through a period of real austerity in a long time. I'm not sure people aren't ready for that. Yeah, I don't think they're ready for that. That's a huge sacrifice that everyone has to make. When I look at this, I mean, we have a financial crisis that happens, what, almost on average every 10 years or so. Did you know that every time the percentage of unemployment increases by 1%, the percentage of suicide increases by 1.2%? It seems to me that this is like a huge public health issue. And it's these a lot of these financial crises are preventable, in my opinion. A lot of them are because of credit contractions or due to like misrepresentations of certain loans or 
fraud on such a huge scale. It, it just seems to me that, you know, we run into this issue almost like 10, every 10 years or so. And there's got to be a way to prevent this from happening. And I, I think with Bitcoin, it's all on a public ledger. It's very difficult to misrepresent things here. Going out of Bitcoin standard could, you know, essentially fix a lot of different things. And it could prevent the frequency of financial crises that we experience as, as human beings. Yeah, you think about the instances of suicide or depression in Canada. They are, you know, it's suicide. Medically assisted suicide is like becoming a, one of our leading causes of death. It's a tragic social problem, I think. And um, yeah, ultimately, to me, it is reflective of the general population not understanding the root problem of broken money because all of these things are the result of, as we're talking earlier about these choices with diet. You know, I, I think it, it has to do with economics that. Again, most people just don't understand how the systemic inflation is a part of how our money system works by design. And so as a result of that, we get all these different offshoots. This is why I think healthcare is such an interesting sector of the economy and of government to hone in on with this particular problem, because it is one of those things, as you mentioned, that governments, this is a non-negotiable thing that is going to be offered no matter what. And in that respect, it's almost like the ultimate fiat thing, because if the cost of it is going up over time, it's like there's just not a lot we can do about that. It's going to go up. And so at that point, you have to consider all these other different trade-offs, which are either people's ability to access it, access it affordably, or we just spend more money and experience, you know, we, we pay for it through accelerating loss of purchasing power. And these are the things to me that are you know, could be different, as you were mentioning, if we if we had a sound money system. So you have some ideas about starting to incorporate this into healthcare now. And this is what you've done with founding Ni Howdy. So just talk a little bit about how prescription rebates work. Then tell us a little bit about your idea. Yeah, definitely. Drug rebates is a very disgusting word, I think, in this industry. What's really crazy is that everyone, every stakeholder in this industry benefits from drug rebates. Um, the only people that don't benefit are the people who have to pay for medications out of pocket. The reason I know this is because I used to own pharmacies, and every single month I get rebate checks from the manufacturer for a million, two million dollars for you know pushing their products. If you sell their brand name drug and you're able to produce sales as the provider, they incentivize you to put their product on the shelves by passing drug rebates. It's really disgusting for me to see that as everyone who's a taxpayer here, you know, we, all our funds go to our, all our tax revenue goes to supporting Medicare, which is for people who are 65 and older. They get preferential pricing on all the drugs that they pay for, but everyone in this, in the United States is supporting this. Why isn't that that person has to pay out of pocket or someone else who wants the same medication? Why do they have to pay sticker price for that? How come they're not eligible to receive drug rebates? So as I thought about this idea, I said, well, this is actually pretty crazy. We should create a system where customers can get drug rebates back for the first time. Problem is, it became a very cost prohibitive exercise to sort of do this. In today's traditional fiat or financial system, we give about 3% back on Nintendo a drug. That's about a 3% uh, rebate or reward, depending how you want to look at it. That's roughly about 30 cents. Postage and handling now in America is about literally 60 cents. So it's impossible for me to send you a check for that for that difference. Uh, I've received comments like, oh, can you just Venmo us? Well, the thing is, if you're a business, to do an ACH transaction, it costs you from a quarter to $1.50 per line item. So you start to look and say, this is just 
incredibly cost prohibitive. So these large publicly traded companies, they get to rake in these drug rebates and 30 cents might not seem like a lot, but it adds up. In fact, one of the largest publicly traded companies here in America, they generate roughly over 500 million on out-of-pocket prescription costs annually. That's a lot of money. <laughs> As a result of those 30 cents, things just adding up over now. Just adding up. So I look at this and say, well, the industry of being a middleman, this will never go away in healthcare. Healthcare is so intertwined with publicly traded companies and who owns these publicly traded companies? It's BlackRock, it's politicians. They're the ones who have this in their portfolio. There's lobbyists who just go in and tell Congress, here's how you should vote. This experience, this middleman model will never go away. But when I look at it, I say it could be done much more efficiently and better way to do it. If you're paying out people on Bitcoin's Lightning Network and you batch all the transactions all at once, the transaction fee is like 1,000%, super low. So you look at this and say, look, Bitcoin's a great mechanism for paying people. It's very unconventional. I get that. A lot of people who, a lot of our customers, they're no quieters are saying, well, why should we take Bitcoin rebates? This seems really odd. Well, I try to explain to them, you know, the financial transaction model, how, you know, US dollars, it's very difficult to do. But what really gets people excited is, you know, 30 cents today might not seem like a lot, but that 30 cents could turn into a couple hundred dollars in the future. And say your medication was $10. Hey, that just covers your medication refill in a few other months or so. I think that's really crazy to me. Like that's the coolest part about this business model. Again, our membership's free of cost. We're the only ones who give drug rebates back to the customer at all. In fact, all these other prescription saving cards providers, they collect all the drug rebates and they earn money and transaction fees and they pass it back to their shareholders of their company. I look at that and say, look, we can do the same exact thing, but we don't have to accept all those drug rebates and we don't have to take a huge cut on the transaction fee. I'd rather be paid on the light network for just a fraction of that amount. And I know that in the future, Bitcoin will be worth a lot more than what it is today. And that's essentially the delta that I think as an entrepreneur, I look at and say, this is very attractive as a business model. Very cool. And so people who want to sign up and use your service, obviously they need a way to receive the Bitcoin. Are your member user members mostly Bitcoiners, 99% Bitcoiners, or do you help some people figure out how to do it? It's really interesting. It's been a mix. I think we have a lot more no-coiners than Bitcoiners, actually. I think when a lot of people sign up for a prescription savings card, they're trying to just find the best pricing on medications. And typically we're really competitive against some of the other publicly traded companies that are out there. So they'll naturally gravitate towards us for that first aspect. The Bitcoin aspect of, you know, getting this as a drug rebate, that's kind of the cherry on top for a lot of people. So that's part, it's kind of being able to talk to them, nurture the relationship and say, look, I don't know what 30 cents is going to be worth in the future, but just check it out after, you know, one or two Bitcoin halving cycles and let me know what your thoughts are. And hopefully this becomes, hopefully you become a believer of Bitcoin afterwards. Yeah, I guess, like you said, if, if you're a customer and you're choosing between getting no rebate or getting some rebate, even if it's in a different kind of money, you're still getting something. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, these rebates are going to be collected by a publicly traded company and it goes back to the shareholders of that company. And whether you own the stock or not, that's a different story. But yeah, I mean, people want to ha- receive instant gratification. They want to know that their value is not being extracted by a large publicly traded company. If you didn't know this, GoodRx, they make roughly about anywhere from 15 to 20% of the gross merchandise value. So whatever the per- whatever the customer pays at the pharmacy, that's pretty much their cut for just for being a middleman. I look at that and say, that's actually really disgusting. Why does this industry even exist in the first place? It's really silly that you have to go through a middleman in order to unlock best pricing on prescriptions you have to pay out of pocket. And this entire industry was actually born from legal inefficiency. It's kind of a long drawn out story, but the short of it is that in the 90s, there used to be two, three, four dollar generic medications at say Target, CVS. Actually, CVS was around back then. Um, it was 
Walgreens and Target. And at that point in time, they were charging customers a really low price, but they were billing the government, say, $20 for the same exact medication. What ended up happening is the government said, hey, you can't do that. There's a most favored nation clause here at play. So all these prescriptions that you sold to people at a lower price, you have to give us back that delta. There's a clawback, essentially. So essentially, you have this industry that was born overnight called prescription saving guards. This will never go away, unfortunately. It's the only way that people can afford to pay for medications if they're not going through insurance. But I think you'll be done for a lot cheaper. I think there's a way to solve out-of-pocket prescription costs here. Yeah, I guess you got me thinking about another really interesting thing I hadn't thought of in advance of this conversation is this really weird phenomenon that exists where identical drugs cost a different amounts in different countries. And so like in, in Canada, we, we, we pay way more for drugs than, than you guys do in the U.S. I guess it's because we don't have any buying power on the scale of the U.S. market, but it's the same medicine. So it's just kind of a crazy, it's a crazy thing that another thing that Bitcoin might be able to fix because Bitcoin is a borderless global money that could change the way things work in every country. And so maybe Bitcoin has a future in leveling out the cost of drugs around the world. Oh, I, to- I totally agree with you there. So actually, went in Canada one time, and I went to go buy Voltaren gel. Um, in America, it actually requires a prescription, but over in Canada, you actually can buy it over the counter. And because I used to own my own pharmacy, I know like Voltaren gel is like 50 bucks a tube. But I was so shocked when I went over to Canada, it was like 10 bucks a tube. There, I was like, that is insanely cheap. And I look at this and reflect back. I'm like, well, it's because in Canada, this is just an over-the-counter product. It's not a prescription. There isn't a middleman that regulates the distribution of money here for this medication. It's just something you can rarely go purchase. But here in America, we have this middleman who essentially pays another middleman for their services and will eventually pay a downstream provider for their services. I think the distribution of the money is so flawed in America when it comes to these services that it dilutes the actual service at the end of the day. And that's why we see a huge market different drugs. Yeah. And it's, uh, as it's again, kind of like getting back to what we were talking about earlier, it's already a, a pretty significant chunk of the overall total spending of the government and growing. And so it, it is a problem that it's a serious problem. There's the forever rising cost of this one particular piece of the pie is uh, something that challenges the, the economics of, of doing it forever. So what's your vision for where Ni Howdy can go over time? Yeah, I'm actually really excited about this whole startup. I mean, we've had sales in other states in California. Like, I don't know anyone in Indianapolis or Missouri or New York. So it's been really exciting to see people using our service in different states. We're looking at this, hoping to renegotiate our buying power. We're renegotiating some of our contracts right now because some of our vendors actually see the power of how powerful Bitcoin can be in acquiring customers for themselves. So we're hoping to increase our rebate percentage in the future for a lot of our medications. Um, a second product we'll be releasing this year. It's going to be called Meowdy, and it's a play out of words, as you can expect, but it's going to be drug rebates for pet prescriptions. That's also a very big industry as well. But I look at this and say, well, in terms of giving Bitcoin back, on such a microtransaction level, can this be applied to any other industry? I look at travel. That's a huge industry. Travelocity, Travelzoo, they don't aggregate these hotels and lodgings just, you know, for the heck of it. They make a huge commission. In fact, the commission is really about 15%. For every lodging stay, if it's car rental, they believe they make about 8% of the gross uh, purchase. For every airline ticket that's purchased through them, they make anywhere from 25 to $50. I look at that and say, well, there's probably a better way to redo this entire middleman aggregation model. And I think if you were to give Bitcoin back to customers, first of all, the transaction would be super low. But two, the exciting part is, look, what if Bitcoin ends up paying for this amazing trip to someplace overseas that you've never been? That's a really cool experience. But I look at this, I'm 
I say Bitcoin, the applications of Bitcoin, it's, it's infinite. There's so many things you can do with it. What I hope to do is just to solve, you know, out-of-pocket prescription costs first, sort of as a test pilot to see, look, can this possibly solve other middleman industries as well? Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting concept. And I totally agree with you that we are just really starting to scratch the surface of understanding all of the niche applications for what appreciating money might do for things like supply chains. It's a really interesting idea you have there. Totally. Appreciate money is a really good way of putting it. Yeah, and none of this is financial advice, but the Canadian monetary supply on average since 1969 has expanded by eight and a half percent per year. That means that the amount of money in Canada doubles every eight and a half or nine years, which is just it's just insane. And so if you start to really understand the numbers of the, the amount of expansion of the money supply and what it means compared to an amount of money that can never change. We are also just at the very beginning, I think, of understanding what that means. Yeah, we're witnessing a very slow death in a sense. Inflation really robs a lot of people who end up saving their money. We're taught at a young age, save your money. Hopefully you can use that money to purchase a nice house, a nice car, whatever it is. But if we're saving money it's and the value of your money keeps going down year over year, then what's the point of saving? There has to be a better method to this, for sure. When your money's losing value, it's never more valuable than it is today. And if you think about all the choices, like getting back to kind of what I was saying earlier, I think about that that basic mechanism is going to probably lead people to choices that are bad for their health because this is a short-term thinking thing, right? When all of a sudden you're you're doing things innately that are resulted to immediacy and and spending your money now. The things that probably take more time or are delayed gratification things are probably the things that are good for your health. And so uh, the money is really setting us up to be unhealthy. The delayed gratification mindset in the fiat world, I think, is probably really dangerous. <laughs> no doubt. Yeah. 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 It's a great way to have less money. Yeah. It's, it's terrifying. I've, you know, I spent some of my time reading autobiographies of people who've lived through times of hyperinflation. And it is probably the most terrifying experience to probably go through. The fact that, you know, one day you're somewhat comfortable, the next day you can't even afford the price of bread. The value of things keeps getting repriced every single minute, every single hour. That's really wild to me. A lot of people end up speculating on different currencies outside their own nation. Some people still have this, I would say, delusional belief that their currency will rebound. You know, I really hope you don't experience hyperinflation. But we're definitely experiencing inflation right now, and it's still kind of out of control at this point. I do hope that there are more Bitcoiners in the future with people who just take the time to learn about, you know, why this is so powerful before kind of diving into the whole world of Bitcoin. Couldn't agree more. James, I, I know you have your own podcast. Maybe so for our listeners who want to follow you or find a little bit more about what you're doing, where can they do that online? Yeah, we're on YouTube. We're called the Orange Pill Club. If you are interested in saving uh, money under prescriptions and earning Bitcoin as a drug rebate, check out nihowdy.com. That's spelled N-I-H-O-W-D-Y.com. You can also find me on LinkedIn, James Wong, PharmD, P-H-A-R-M-D. That stands for Dr. Pharmacy. Yeah, I respond to everything. So hope to connect with any listeners here. Be awesome. Cool. And just for our listeners, for right now, Nihowdy is in the U.S. only, but hopefully spreading to other countries in the near future. Hopefully. <laughs> All right, James, thanks uh, Thanks for coming on today. I have enjoyed this immensely and uh, all the best with your startup. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Block Reward. We're trying to do something different here, creating accessible conversations meant for people who aren't obsessed with Bitcoin. If you found this episode informative and engaging, hit that subscribe button to make sure you stay updated with future episodes. 
Your feedback matters. We'd greatly appreciate it if you could take a moment to share your reviews and help us with our goal of creating Bitcoin content that is simple and easy to understand. Bitcoin has an important role to play in the future of finance. It will change the way we save, spend, and invest. Discover why Bitcoin offers a game-changing opportunity for forward-thinking employers by visiting blockrewards.ca. BlockRewards' mission is helping Canadian employers implement strategies for integrating Bitcoin into compensation and benefits. Supercharge your recruitment and retention strategies and help your team members plan for the rising cost of living by rewarding their work with the hardest money ever invented. Special thanks to our top sponsor, Paramount Employee Benefits Consulting, Canada's only Bitcoin Forward Benefits and Pension Advisory. For more information, find them at paramountbenefits.ca. Big shout out to Podigy, our production team that makes all this possible, and BMX Escape for producing our music. Bitcoin is an expansive and dense topic many people walk away from early. To Bitcoin enthusiasts looking for that podcast they can share with friends, family, and colleagues, one they'll actually listen to, we hope that is us. The content of these conversations is meant to be provided for information purposes only. Nothing here is investment advice. Bitcoin is a big topic. Be sure to do your own research before making any personal financial decisions. Thanks for listening. 